Great. So I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 to 14. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, we've come to the concluding, our concluding message uh, on a magnificent letter that has occupied our thoughts over the past few months, the letter of First Peter. Sometimes it's called an epistle. Uh, uh, or a letter, but meaning a teaching letter, an epistle, a teaching letter. You know, none of us enjoy pain. We would attempt to do everything we can possibly do to dodge the bullet of pain, uh, simply because, uh, well, honestly, who likes it? (laughs) Who likes to have pain in your life? Uh, We get prescriptions to deal with it. Uh, One of our uh, gentlemen this morning said to me that he's got a lot of pain this morning. He's here, but he's got a lot of pain. Um, And, you know, we get prescriptions to deal with physical pain. Uh, But how how do you fix a broken heart? What kind of prescription do you get for that? And how do you put a a Band-Aid on a financial crisis that is huge in one's life? And yet the uh, uh, Peter's first letter has much to say about pain. It's written to people who are experiencing pain. And the letter is penned from a man who knew a great deal about pain. He had suffered as an apostle. He had suffered in his heart after his denial of Jesus. He, he actually felt, I, I don't know how to describe it, but like an absolute bum, a traitor, a deserter, a disloyal creature who missed the boat. Who, he knew who Jesus was, but in that moment of truth, In that moment of truth, he turned aside, he turned away, and his whole life was shaken to the very core of his existence. And he had to say, who am I? Who am I? But you know, when you examine the life of Peter, you have to say, maybe pain gets a bad rap. Maybe pain isn't so bad after all, because look at the man of God that Peter became. I mean, I hesitate to even say that because I don't necessarily want to encounter the kind of pain that that Peter actually went through, not at all. I mean, is that what it takes? And maybe the answer we would like to hear is, well, not always, not always, that we don't have to go through that. However, let me ask you this question. If you allow your mind to uh, sweep back over your past years, whether that be only 20 years, maybe it's 40 years, or maybe it's 60 years, and maybe, maybe for some of you it could be 80 years, 
Can I ask you this? When did you grow the most? When did you grow the most? And I know the answer in my life. I'm guessing that uh, many of you have similar experiences in times of crisis and in times of pain. We grow the most. So here we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 following the section that Joel read for us this morning. And we've had a whole letter with the subplot of pain. I appreciated Pastor Norb's words last week on humility. They was good words for us. Fighting the enemy of pride with the weapon of humility. When we humble ourselves, we are buoyed up. We're lifted up in due time. As Peter writes, if you humble yourself, you'll find that God lifts you up. If you humble yourself, you'll find that God puts a hydraulic jack under your backside. That's my image. And he lifts you up. Just like when you get a flat tire. You gotta get, you gotta get it jacked up so you can get on the road again. And humility gets you back up and running again. It's the blessing of God that he lifts you up. But it comes through the process of humility. Now, the last section is kind of interesting in the sense that after all that Peter has to say, he concludes with a word about our adversary. He's given uh, advice to the, to the elders. He's given great counsel to those who are younger uh, in the faith. But now he steps back and he wants to give this one final shot. He gives a warning about the one that would uh, love to drive us into the ditch. And that's the adversary. So let's think about this. Uh, I hope you won't write this off and say, well, what are you talking about? Do you really believe in a personal adversary called Satan? And the answer is yes. Yes, we're in a dreamland if we don't. The Bible is very clear, and perhaps you've lived long enough to see the tricks that he's tried to send your way to knock you off stride. Number one, give sufficient credibility to the existence of an enemy. Let's start there. Give sufficient credibility to the existence of an enemy. Pastor Norb reminded us of uh, verse 7, which says to cast, or the word is to hurl, or to throw all of our cares and anxieties on God because he cares for you. One of the reasons we have anxieties is because we have an enemy. He, he is the cause of much of our anxiety. Be self-controlled and alert your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. I remember so well a time in my life when I was growing in the Lord. I was, I was discovering new truths. You know, sometimes when you leave home and you go off to college or you even go off to camp for a week, you, you get out of your home context. You go on a retreat. It's amazing how your, the change of environment opens you up to receive new things. And here I was in Seattle, and I was rubbing shoulders uh, in my college experience there with people uh, who were, who were com 
experiencing new spiritual truths. And I was observing my peers finding God in freshness in vitality. And my heart was resonating with that and I was attracted to that. And I discovered that in my quest to walk with God, the enemy wanted to block me. He didn't want me to grow. He wanted to bring fear into my life. And I remember a period of time when I was growing, but on the other hand, boy, was I struggling. He put fear into my life and I didn't know what was happening. And I knew it wasn't God that, that this fear, this exorbitant fear should be in my life. And I knew that I had to combat the enemy at every turn. But it took a while for me to comprehend or to begin to understand what was happening. Because I'd never experienced this before. And this was happening to me, this intimidating fear. Crucial, physical, intimidating fear that I was going through for a period of weeks and months. Now I know. I know what that was all about. The enemy was trying to knock me off my game. He was trying to settle me down and say, come on, what are you doing? Don't walk with God intimately. That's what his message was. We need to give sufficient credibility to the existence of an enemy. I love the words of Warren Wiersbe who writes, I admire people who can build and repair things. During a church building program, I was watching an electrician install a complex control panel. I said to the man, it just amazes me how you fellows can calmly work on those lines with all of that power there. How do you do it? The electrician smiled and said, well, the first thing you have to do is respect it. And I think we have a lot of electricians in our congregation and you must appreciate that, I'm sure. The first thing you have to do is respect it. And then you can handle it. Well said. If you write the enemy off and say, ah, there's nothing to that. You put yourself in a place of non-protection. You could get a jolt. On the other hand, the enemy could just say, I don't even need to worry about that guy. I can put the lights out and they don't even know they're out. They don't get it. I was thinking this week, I wonder what it would have been like back in the days of the Second World Wars, Second World War to be a military strategist. Say you were the chief military strategist on the side of the Allies. And, and you know how we see in movies, you have this giant board in front of you. And you have ships and airplanes and armies and, and they move it around. They move around to see where these armies and planes and ships uh, should be. Planning where to be, predicting where to be next, how to respond to the enemy, how to counterattack. What a job that would be. But what a serious job because if you make a mistake and send planes over here and the attack is coming from somewhere else, what a tragedy for those that are going to be on the defensive. Wise military leaders and coaches never go into battle without carefully studying their opponents, if at all possible. They want to know how they operate. They want to know their character. They want to know their strengths and their weaknesses and their methods or schemes and so on. 
To be effective against the enemy, you must know your enemy so you can be prepared to effectively counter his attacks. There's good reason to know enough about the enemy to be able to give sufficient credibility and respect and also know how to be prepared. There are a variety of names in the scripture uh, used to identify the enemy. And if you study them, they will tell you a lot about who he is and how to prepare. I find myself using the word enemy because that's what he is. He is in opposition to everything we are trying to do. You walk with God with a full heart and you arouse the enemy. You should know that. He doesn't like it. This is a good word today for us as a congregation because the enemy doesn't like us moving forward to reach a community for Christ. He will try to knock us off our horse. He always does. So we give him enough credibility so we respect him of what he's capable of. Not too much respect, but enough. There are a few different words that we find in the Bible to identify the enemy. The title Satan occurs 53 times in 47 verses in the Bible. The primary idea is always adversary, one who withstands. It points to Satan as the opponent of God and of believers and all that's right and good. We should note that Satan often appears as an angel of light, promising what is supposed to be good, Genesis 3, 1, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, but he is simply being deceptive to achieve his ends. Sometimes he's called the devil. Matthew 4.1, Ephesians 4.27. Devil is the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer or defamer. Slanderer, defamer. This accentuates his goal and his work to impugn the character of God and believers. The word can be referred to as an opponent in a lawsuit in a courtroom scene where accusations are made. And diabolus, devil, is making slanderous comments towards God and towards Christians. He's called the serpent in Revelation 12.9. And that name looks back to the account in Genesis 3 and the temptation in the garden. It's designed to remind us of his crafty deception and guile. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Then there's Lucifer, son of the morning, Isaiah 14, verse 12. The two names mean morning star or shining one, and son of the dawn, Isaiah 14, 12. The Hebrew word for Lucifer is Hillel, literally the shining one, the shining one. Ironically, as the shining one, he got his eyes off the Lord the source of his brilliance. And he became proud and he became boastful instead of full of praise to God's glory. And that was the cause of his fall. It was pride. And then sometimes he's called the evil one in John 17, verse 15, and 1 John 5, 9. And in those two passages, Satan is described as evil. It denotes what is not only ugly and useless, but what is injurious and destructive. Satan is actively engaged in destruction, in causing pain and injury and death. He is a cancer to the human race. 
Then sometimes he's called the dragon. Revelation 12, 7. The Greek word is refers to a hideous monster, a dragon or a large serpent. The word underscores the, the, the cruel, vicious and bloodthirsty character and power of Satan. It's especially related to end times and the world system. When God removes all restraints and allows him to go his natural way to become who he naturally is. He is the dragon. And then sometimes he's called the prince or the ruler, John 12, 31. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And then sometimes he's called the god of this age or of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In Revelation 12, or Revelation 9, 11, he's called Abaddon and Apollyon, meaning destroyer, names that refer to his destructiveness. It tells you something about who he is. The essence of who he is could be summed up in one word, adversary. His very nature is the fact that he is against everything that you are for, especially if you have a heart for God. If you have a desire to walk with God, he's against it. So Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Because your, devil, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I like the striking way the message puts it. Keep a cool head. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep cool as you walk with God. Keep a cool head. Don't panic. Don't be careless. Be cool. Be attentive. Be in touch. Some translations say be sober, not under intoxicating influences. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Same word that Jesus spoke to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, when Peter and the apostles were, were, were charged to pray and Jesus went off a little ways from them and he said, be vigilant, be watchful, pray. And they had a difficult time staying away. It's simply a reminder for all of us to keep a cool head, to keep a watchful eye as we walk with God. You can expect an attack. You can anticipate that the enemy will stick his foot out and trip you as you go by. And you say, where did that come from? You don't need to be paranoid, but just be on guard. Expect a curveball. If you're vigilant, if you have heads up, you won't be caught off guard. As someone used to say in my background, oh yeah, that's old Slewfoot. Up to his no good again. And they just recognize his tactics. It's an old expression, but it means enemy. Old Slewfoot. He's up to it again. So we should give him a healthy respect for the enemy. Give him some credibility. On the other hand, don't give him too much. He doesn't have the power to twist us around his finger. He doesn't. Any of you remember the comedian Flip Wilson? That's a long time ago. He became rather renowned for the words, The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. I take no responsibility for, for that. The devil made me do that. And, you know, that can be a real cop-out. I'm not responsible. Hey, it's the devil. It's on his charge. It's not me. What did Eve say in the Garden of Eden? What did Adam say? Well, Adam said, it's the woman you gave me. 
I mean, she gave me the, <clears throat> the fruit and I ate it. And Eve said, the serpent, it was the serpent that you made. It deceived me. It's not my fault, Lord. It's the serpent. Flip Wilson is in pretty good company. The devil made me do it. Regardless of our external sources of temptation, whether it be the world and its attractions or whether it be Satan, the final source is the, our sinful nature. It, it has to come through the grid. The final source is our own nature and our own selfish hearts. The balance is that Satan can attack us and he can trick us and only God knows how much we experience of that from day to day. The direct results of the, of the devil's onslaughts. We don't really know how to measure that too effectively. So just stay cool and just stay vigilant. We may not really be aware of the activities of the enemy. Our battle is not only with the flesh and blood of this world, but with supernatural powers, powers of darkness. We know that they were active in the life of Job, and it was quoted this morning, and the theme of Job is the sovereignty of God. But, but Satan was active there. We know the story of Paul with the thorn in the flesh, which he defined as a messenger of Satan. So stay alert is the word. So first give sufficient credibility to the enemy. The second point is get tough continually. Get tough continually. Stay in charge. I was over at Metal Art Christian School this week and I, I saw a couple hundred students assemble for a gathering and I realized, oh, I'm glad I'm not a teacher. What, what a challenge to keep 200 students in check. And in a classroom, you always have to stay in charge. You can't let down or the class will take over. And Peter says that, resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Now just before he says that, he's described the enemy as a roaring lion. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that's quite a word picture. Now, sometimes he's an angel of light. And you really have to discern when he's an angel of light. Is he for me or is he against me? Is this, is this working for me? I don't get this. And you have to be very wise in discerning. This picture is very clear. He is a roaring lion. That's his, new, that's his true nature. The intent is clear. He would love to strike with his paw and knock you to the ground and devour you. When I was in grade three, I went to a one-roomed country schoolhouse. Rode a horse to school. And uh, that's going to date me. And one day, the teacher sent me to her home, which was very close to the school, only two or three hundred yards away. And she sent me to get a kitchen knife to cut a cake that she had brought to school to share with her students. And so all I had to do was walk over to the farmyard, very close, go in the house, go to this particular cabinet and get the knife. When I went to the farmyard, I was told... Uh, just to, to walk right in, don't worry about it, nobody's home, because she couldn't leave. She had 30 kids to watch over, so she sent me. 
What she didn't tell me was that they had a dog, a German shepherd dog. I'm sure she just forgot. Maybe she thought 30 students was too much and she only wanted 29. I'm not sure. (laughs) That would not be true. Well, when I got to the yard, I heard this growl. And then I saw this dog leap right over the gate and land right in front of me, ready to devour me. Intuitively and oh so fearfully, I put up my finger and said, stop. I had no training to do that. It was intuitive. And then I backed away one step at a time and the dog followed one step at a time until it had backed me into safe territory. I got back to the school. I reported that I did not have the knife, (laughs) nor would I be getting the knife. A missionary was telling children about encountering lions in Africa. First thing he said is to remember that you should never try to flee. That would mean certain death. The lion can run much faster than we can. Next, you should try to look very brave and stare right into the lion's eyes. If you are successful, he will back down and run away. If you are not successful, well, you should be prepared for the lion to attack you. Have your spear ready so that when he leaps on you, he will land on the spear and be killed. I just share that with you in case you ever need that advice. (laughs) Get your spear up, and when the lion jumps on you, it'll land right in his belly, and you got him. Good counsel when we meet a lion, but more so when we meet the devil. Don't flee from him. But resist him. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Now you may need this verse as you journey with God. You may need this someday. You may already have needed this. What does it mean to resist him? How do you do that? The word resist means to stand against, to oppose. Stand against the enemy. Oppose him. Don't let him run over you. Get your guard up. Get tough with him. Look, it says, standing firm in the faith. In the faith. It can't be self-strength or you will be overmatched. You can't count on your ability to articulate or reason or talk him out of it. Or whatever skills you might bring to the table. You come not in your strength, but in the strength that God gives you. And that that is the power of your faith in Christ. The power of your relationship with Jesus. We stand in the power of our all-powerful God. And we trust him to knock the enemy back. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. First step, submit to God. Draw close to God so that you have His power. There's a well-known passage in Ephesians 6. In fact, it came up this morning in the Life Journal if you're reading along in that uh, Bible program. And we do well to review, review it again and again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will not, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It's worth saying there aren't any secret formulas. You don't have to memorize the script. Now I say this, 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 and this. No. Draw close to God. Ask Him for the strength to resist. Ask Him to do the battle and He will push back the enemy. Satan is afraid of Jesus. He is intimidated by the power of God. He will back off. And Peter says, resist him because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Verse 9. It helps to remember that we're not alone in the battle. There's a huge battle going on in the world today, and there always has been. Or if we could see the lineup throughout history, first generation, second century, third century, if we could see the Christians who have been praying and resisting and engaged in the battle. And today, around the world, we have brothers and sisters who are standing firm against the enemies, against the enemy. And their situation is probably a whole lot more intense than ours. Around the world today, Christians are praying. And Christians are meeting in little house groups and in sanctuaries and in coffee shops. And they're praying for one another. As one commentator put it, the strength that comes from God's caring and praying community cannot be appreciated enough. Support groups and prayer chains are popular for a reason. They work. Prayer works. I wish you could have been a fly on the wall at our elders meeting this past Monday night. We were praying about some of the escalating costs of the building. You know, you're helpless to stop some of these costs from rising. Our economy has heated up again. But, but, but as we were praying and just before we prayed together, we had this beautiful assurance from God that he was leading us. And he was telling us to trust him, that he's going before us. And that promise brought such joy to our hearts. The power of prayer. It works. It works. And God gave us a freedom in our spirits. God has designed the body of Christ to function in this way. Remember, we're not lone rangers who are doing hand-to-hand combat with a superior foe. No, we're a thousand boats streaming down the Thames River. We're a platoon of vigilant soldiers watching each other's backs with a victory assured by the power of God. Praise God. Praise God. Let me wrap it up with verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God is in complete control. Yes, there will be battle scars. You can't fight a war without some suffering and some scars and pain. So Peter has been saying, you can expect that. You should expect that. You won't be able to dodge the bullet. You should expect that. However, there will come a day when some important things are going to be accomplished. Number one, we will be restored. That is precisely what God wants to do. He wants to mend us. He wants to restore us. He wants to restore what sin has taken from us and to mend what sin has broken. My brother came to faith a little later in life when he came to Christ in his mid-forties, he realized he had wasted so many years. 
And he found that great verse in the book of Joel, chapter 2 and verse 25, which says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. And he latched onto those verses, knowing that God would restore him, restore all those years, and mend his life. And bring him back into the full flow of what God wants to do. And at that moment, when he came to that full realization, he dedicated his life to follow. And he has. Maybe there's someone here this morning that longs for that too. All those years. And you would simply say, Lord, restore me. Restore me. Mend my life. Bring me into the full flow of your forgiveness and grace. So that my years from here on in count for you. And I make up for all those years that have been wasted. Secondly, we'll be made strong. When you've come through all the pain and all the suffering, you'll be restored and you will be strong. You will have developed character and resolve to walk with God. You will be strong in your family and in your church and in your relationships so others will know that you walk with God. You will be made strong. Thirdly, we will be established. Yes, God will make you firm and steadfast. Jesus wants to use those brief times of suffering in your lifetime to help us lay a strong foundation for the rest of our journey. He will bring together all the fragmented pieces and put it together on a solid rock, the solid foundation, so that we are pillars of strength for the kingdom. Yes, kingdom people established on the firm foundation of Christ our Lord. And then the section says, final greetings. Verses 12 to 14 gives the concluding words. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Silas, his friend and brother in the Lord, was a help to him in in writing this letter. Maybe Peter was dictating. Maybe Silas was doing the writing. Maybe Silas helped him to actually deliver the letter. And verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Most likely, Babylon is code language for Rome. We understand that today as missionaries who are serving in in countries that are hostile to the gospel. Every once in a while, I'll get a letter uh, coming out of a country uh, these days, and some of the letters are blacked out. And it's just for the protection of the missionary in case that letter gets into wrong hands. And they're usually emails. And they usually say, don't email us back or, or make sure you don't use these, these words. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. This was code language. Not Babylon, but Rome. Mark is probably John Mark. This is the same John Mark that was with Paul. And how wonderful. Remember Paul and Silas traveled together because of that, a disagreement over John Mark. And then John Mark and Barnabas traveled together. Well, here we are years later, probably 15 years later, and Silas 
and John Mark are together. They were on different teams. Things are well. Things are well. Isn't it great that although there are disagreements along the way, you've had them in your life. There is a way to resolve differences and work together. What a fine example. We must not allow the disagreements to separate us and keep us in bondage, but be free to forgive and be free to move on. Closing words. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Good place to conclude. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.